0: Hi, this is John Lodge of the Moody Blues and you're listening to Follow Your Dream on the Robert Miller Podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome. Welcome. To the follow your dream podcast hi everybody and welcome to another episode of the follow your dream podcast with listeners in hundred and eighty eight countries i'm robert miller your host my guest today is patrick myers of killer queen which is the leading queen tribute band in the world patrick performs as freddie mercury and has been doing so since Killer Queen was formed in 1993. His transformation is remarkable in terms of appearance, singing, and stage presence. There are many tribute bands these days that look, play, and sound like the originals, but Killer Queen is right at the top of the list. The BBC has called them kings of the musical impersonators. I recently went to see Killer Queen perform in their first US performance on their current tour. And I can enthusiastically confirm that they are fantastic. Their energy and musicianship are off the charts. And Patrick's presentation, singing, and stage presence are just awesome. See them if you can. And in the second half of this interview, As I do with all my musical guests, Patrick and I are going to do a song fest where I've asked him to pick out a couple of Queen's best works that he loves, and we're going to talk about them, and he's going to give you his take and his backstory. My featured song in this episode, and I always feature a song of mine in each episode, and I try to make it relate in some fashion to my guest or the subject matter, And in this instance, I am featuring my band's reimagined version of The Kinks' You Really Got Me from our album, The Queen's Carnival. Why this song? Well, Killer Queen plays exact covers. My band plays reimagined covers. So a different approach. But as the Rolling Stones said, it's only rock and roll. So Patrick Myers, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. I'm delighted to be here. This is great. I'll tell you, people can't see this because we don't use video on this. We're just doing audio, but it's like I'm talking to Freddie Mercury, okay? He's in (laughs) in costume. He looks just like Freddie. And uh, this is great because, you know, Killer Queen has replicated the music of Queen so perfectly. So I want to ask you, when you were young, Because I asked this question of a lot of my guests. What was your dream? Did you want to be a musician? Did you love Queen? Did that come later on in life? Tell us about the transition. I discovered Queen when I was about 12.
1: Uh, So maybe maybe 13 or so, I guess. But um, when I was a kid, I moved around different things. I wanted to be all sorts of things. I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to be the invisible man. And I wanted to be Paddington Bear at one point. Um, (laughs) So I was always, I was, and, but. Music always fascinated me. Um, I didn't learn music till quite late. I picked up the piano and only did it for a little bit. But um, I was always, every time I went around someone's house and they had a piano in the house and they'd go off and we'd be, it was a play date and so I'd you know, be playing with toys. I'd always sneak off into the room and just make strange noises on the piano and think, gosh, this sounds amazing. You know, and and was fascinated by the idea of recording music and sort of so you could hear what you had done back. Um all of but that. You didn't music. have
0: lessons at that time.
1: I didn't. No, I didn't have lessons till I was about. I started. I trained as a classical guitarist, and I did that right the way through the grades. So that I, when I when I jumped in, I jumped in with both feet. Um, and did all the theory and that. And and she, my my guitar teacher Yvonne uh, Bloor, she noticed that I composed as well. So she sort of stopped the guitar lessons I by doing and said, "Right, we're going to do composition," and that was fantastic for me. So I had to come up with a new piece each week and 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 write you know and uh, uh a melody and things and i uh, just and arrange it as well for classical guitar so how old was were great. you at the time i was about uh 11 i think 11 to 12 and i did my i did all my grades through to about 15 and then i discovered rock and roll and i wasn't, wasn't going to do another grade <laughs> and i quickly <laughs> learned the classical I taught,
0: guitar at that
1: yeah no no and i taught myself me at piano more or less i had a few lessons to up to, to to some early grades um and and then just sort of just thought, oh, I'm just going to play by ear because it's it's that's what I wanted to do, really. Wanted to, I wanted to use it as a songwriting thing. And I, I was just in awe of anyone that could play the piano really, really well.
0: You know, it's funny because when I was young, I, I played the trumpet at first. My father played the trumpet and I started to play the trumpet. And when this little band from Liverpool came out, it suddenly wasn't very cool to play the trumpet <laughs> any longer. So I had to teach myself guitar and then the bass. Yeah. So you had a little transition there as
1: well. You and Paul McCartney because Paul McCartney's dad gave bought him a trumpet originally. And uh, he had the same thing. He went, "Hang on, I can't I can't I'm not going to I'm not going to score any girlfriends playing trumpet."
0: <laughs> yeah, but he didn't change to to the bass because of this little band in Liverpool. No, like I no, he was a little band in
1: Liverpool. <laughs> That's so yeah. Right. yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so you you became a rock and roll kind of kid at 11, 12ish well yeah i discovered
1: the beatles first via my Uh mum who was american and she had the american pressings of the albums and i thought they were amazing and i I, and but they and i I quickly realized that they had this whole catalog of work but also john lennon was no more and the beatles are no more and they they existed as solo entities but there was going to be no more beatles right and i was um and i thought wow maybe lightning only happens once maybe that kind of level of song writing and that level whether a whole band contributes to the whole thing in that alchemic kind of way and, and you know where they all write and you know um maybe that was just sort of a one-off thing but i was asking my friends you know wh- who who else is there you know uh, wh- what else we got and we we're on this big coach trip to germany at the time and everyone had these um i've never heard stereo very often before we, we only had well, we had we had a stereo in our house but it only ah. one speaker worked so you had right. to keep unplugging it and then putting <laughs> the other speaker in and listening to these crazy 1960s mixes where the drums was all on one side and, thinking, oh. right. and then trying to imagine how it all sounded together because only one speaker worked um <laughs> so it was crazy so they put headphones on my ears and said oh pat listen you're gonna love this and it was queen greatest hits one and i'd heard the name queen but I was never sure what exactly Queen was because they always seemed to look so different when they turned up. Like their 70s Queen, I remember seeing that as a boy. It looked like something out of Doctor Who with and Rhapsody with all those great big, you know, visual feedback thing they had. And that, that looked very Doctor Who to me. But then when Queen came out with things like Crazy Think Love, I thought that's just a totally different band. I didn't get it. Right. You know, as, as a child, they changed visually so much. And suddenly there was this guy with a moustache that looked very sort of like, you know, and their music changed too. And their music changed and things like Radio Gaga. So I was slightly bewildered by what Queen was. Um, and there was, this, there was this single, I went to school in America briefly for about a year. And there was a single called Another One Bites The Dust. And it was back in 1980. And, and it, we weren't allowed to talk about that song in school because it was banned or something. Because it was sure about it's. people dying or something. And uh, it was supposed to be a really hard edge, gritty song. And I didn't know that was by Queen. They said, that's just, no, no, you're not allowed to talk about Another One Bites The Dust. And it was like, wow. So it's like an underground song or something.
0: You know what's funny about a song like that? They didn't write this for that purpose. But now yeah. in sports, whenever there's a winner and a loser, the yeah. loser gets serenaded by another one bites the dust. Okay. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> I could see that working really well. It's just the way that life goes. You know, yeah. You write something for one purpose, and then the next thing you know, it's being used in a commercial or for other purposes. Anyway,
1: keep going. I think Queen have been brilliant with that. All the songs sort of translate to sport quite a lot, actually. So, yeah, I listened to it and it blew. And it not only was it, it was one of my first experiences of stereo, uh, certainly with wearing headphones, it blew my mind, the songwriting. Yeah. It was so exciting to listen to. That album is so... It's such as as it's 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 like a calling card from God. You know, it's got so it's got so many amazing tracks and it's so beautifully sequenced. It compounds you and surprises you and excites you over and over and over again. Um So, I mean, going from something like human rhapsody into another one bites of dust and then the delicious sort of like null coward sophistication of Killer Queen with those beautiful clicks and and the level of production I thought was just amazing.
0: One of my regrets in music is that for whatever reason, I was into all the bands, you know, in the sixties or seventies, but there was a little gap in my musical, not ability, but in my following. And I missed out two bands that were a rage at one time, queen being one of them and the mm-hmm. police being the other. Oh, yeah. And the only reason I discovered queen is because my wife loved queen and said to me, this is going to be right up your alley. You must listen to these guys. And I listened, as you just said, and was blown yeah. away by their musicianship and everything about their songwriting, yeah. the whole thing, just a remarkable band. Production the songwriting
1: and also the sense of personality within the band as well. You know, when you, when you move out of great hits and move into the albums, what I loved and was so delighted to discover was um, you in, in the same way as you got the George song and you had a John song and a Paul song, you get that with Queen, uh, but you've got four of them writing, you know, run occasionally a Ringo song, but only very occasionally. And so you had, Roger's sort of very sort of sometimes left field and sometimes very humorous and sort of like uh, he, he was always from almost like a different place and, and brought a very different roaring energy to to the thing. And then you had Brian, you could turn out these amazing rockers, but also this very introspective stuff, but also very pastiche songs like, like we're going to cover later with things like Good Company, um, but always with a really good beating heart
0: in it. Brian May, in my mind, is one of the greatest guitarists that, ever hit rock and roll for sure. I absolutely agree. But I think he's one of the most amazing writers of, of, of the 20th
1: century. I think he's absolutely, because I think with Queen, it's such a dynamic front man. I think in, in the same way as, you know, with lots of bands, they think the singer writes everything, you know, um, I think people, if, who have a sort of working knowledge of Queen without knowing too much about them, you know, might assume that, but it, I, that's why I think, you know, the, the, uh, the kudos due to, to Brian and Roger, well, the Queen as a whole, as writers, sort of gone a little bit under the radar because they sounded so great, because they were so fantastic and they were so amazing. So the quality of the writing is absolutely amazing. Sounds like who wants to live forever.
0: The other thing about Brian that I admire very much is that he's kept all his hair all these years. Okay. I know. <laughs> Even though it's now gray. I know. It's super amazing to me. He's still that got man. it all. <laughs> I think he looks really cool now. I think gray suits
1: him. He looks very, he did this, um, I think it was a breast cancer video or something. And he was sort of like, there were sort, of, sort of three women sort of strutting around him. And he was just very much this silver fox with a pink guitar, yeah. pink version of his
0: guitar doing his thing. And he looks super cool. All right. So, how did you get into Queen as? A tribute band. Tell us about that. Ah, yeah. Well, this was years later.
1: Um, I'd followed Queen, and Queen would go quiet, and then Queen would come back. And they they seemed to go quiet for, for years. And then they, they sort of went quiet in the early 80s, and then they went quiet again after this big success of, you know, Live Aid and then a Kind of Magic and their tour. And they, they'd reemerge, and they'd reemerged this recently, most recently, uh, back in 1991, with an album called um, Innuendo, which I thought was. I thought, I mean, it, it was like producing their their, their, their best work um, at such a late stage, potentially, of their career. Um, I thought it was amazing. And it was so exciting and so surprising. Um, and so I'd gone away to university with that, uh, with having discovered these songs, delighted, and then met lots of friends. Uh, this was in the, the, the winter of 1991, these new friends, and we'd discussed... Beatles and Queen and 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 Led Zeppelin and and Bowie and and all sorts of things we we bonded over our music collections like everybody does and um, there were no tributes then there was a tribute to uh ABBA called Bjorn again it was a fantastic band And they they were just emerging, so it was it was they then they were sort of like, have you heard of this? They dress up as Abba. This is you know (laughs) what what and they they pretend to be Abba. Yes, we would have to go and see this, you know. And it was and it was very amusing, beautifully done musically, uh, and amusing because it was there was a degree of irony there, knowingness. Um, But I didn't think at the time. Oh, therefore, this is going to become something, you know, Um, and everybody's going to be doing this sort of thing uh, in a couple of years. But. um, then we got the news that Freddie was ill and then boom, 24 hours later, Freddie had passed away and we were all in total shock. Freddie for me felt like he was just going to be there forever. You know, it was like, because he, I'd found Queen, you know, and, and they'd followed me through my childhood, well, through my teens, and they provided so much inspiration and, and I just thought this band have got it. They're going to keep going forever because they, they keep reinventing themselves and they keep, they keep doing it so beautifully. Yeah, and he was a force of nature. He was a force of nature, but also the, the quality of writing stayed so good. It, they didn't, you know, that's what, that's what the, the writing was the thing that always astounded me. And and any band producing one album is amazing, but producing the amount of amazing albums they've done, over the amount of time they've done, and yeah. some over, overcoming personal squabbles and the bits and bobs, you know, staying together, you know, uh, I thought they, this band is just going to stay together. They're not going to split up. They've worked it out. They're going to do what the Beatles didn't do, which is, find a way through their problems, you know, and hang in there together and go off and do solo things. And I loved Freddie's solo things. I thought the Barcelona letter was cool. But anyway, suddenly he was um, not there and we were in, in, in a state of shock. Right. And also we'd all just left home. So we felt like some element in the home had been ripped away, you know, something that you thought, you know, like a security blanket or something like that wasn't there anymore and so we you suddenly felt very exposed in a way that took that winded you and felt you quite surprised so we all kind of um got together and we sang songs in the same way that everyone was singing songs for john lennon and in 1980 there was that level of shock about it uh we didn't see it coming we didn't i didn't read um sort of national Enquirer type stuff i hadn't followed that at all um my brother had whispered to me about a week before that freddie might not be very well and i didn't want to believe him but that was my first, that was the first time I'd heard it. I'd seen him on TV. I'd seen he'd look different. But I thought, maybe that's how you age. I didn't, you know, because I was young. I didn't, I thought, oh, cracker, yes, you do age a bit, don't you? <laughs> you know, and oh, well, I, and not, I, not like that, unless not like that. I problem. hadn't seen, I hadn't seen the final videos. um But I, 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 I something, alarm bells had rang slightly, but I'd skirted over it. I hadn't, I hadn't given it any thought. I was more interested in the music and just excited. So we sang songs to each other. Um, We had a a big echoey staircase that led down to um, a laundry room when the laundry room was this sauna of a place with a piano totally out of tune and battered. And so we'd all meet and we'd sing um, and and one of us would be waiting for the the laundry to finish and we'd play songs to each other on the piano while we were waiting to get, to get, to get our trousers cleaned. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, and so that's how we started playing songs to each other musically, just because there happened to be a piano there. And someone would say, "No, no, no, it doesn't go like this. It goes like this." And we go, "Oh, no, 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 okay, no, no, but this one goes like this." These were Queen songs that you were playing to one another. These were Queen songs we were playing. Yeah, we were okay. playing Queen songs. And I, I'd worked out my own version of *Even Rhapsody*, and I discovered it was wrong. And and there were these lovely, beautiful chords which I hadn't, you know, I couldn't, I could hear on the record, and I knew I wasn't playing right. I was playing the basic versions of the chords. And Brennan, who became our backup keyboard guy, um, said, "No, no, 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 Pat, you're saying it wrong. This is how you do it." And I thought, "Oh, great!" And um, I don't know it. It. I, I sort of pulled it. I don't look, if you saw me out of costume, I don't look anything like this at all. Um, now I've I, I found a way of doing this, but uh, I look so different that it, I, d- I wouldn't have thought, oh yes, you can be a lookalike. I would have thought, no, I, I, I just look nothing like that. But I pulled a face in the mirror while I was doing a, a sort of Freddie pose where he sort of like does that pout and he sort of brings his eyebrows down and does that. And I had a beard at the time and Freddie had a beard in his later, in his later years. And uh, I suddenly thought, oh, Crikey, that's, that's, there is something there that looks similar, and it shocked me. Um, And that all happened with a a few months later, a few months after that. I'd never done that before. I'd never pulled that face. I'd never thought of doing that. And I thought, oh, okay. And so it dawned on me that there was something we could do. We could... And I thought, well, we could do this tribute concert, we could do a concert, but I wasn't sure because there were no, so, but we thought, well, okay, let's, let's, let's proceed as if we have a concert, let's proceed as if we know what we're doing.
0: But how did you bring together the talent? Well, we got, we, 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 everyone
1: from the halls of residence, it was in that same halls, that's, that's where it formed. And we we were at, I mean, I was at a good college, Goldsmiths, which is part of London University. So it was full of music and drama students. So, uh, we got, uh, we got everyone. sort of was pulled essentially. we got the drummer from, from the music department, but it was basically all mostly the nucleus of the band was, was in that halls of residence.
0: I mean, that's pretty remarkable on its own because the the, the guys in the band in queen were were terrific musicians. Okay. Are terrific musicians. So to find guys that are all living, you know, in your area, that happened to be as good enough as them. That's something else. We were hopelessly we
1: were uh, we, we we shared the same level of naivety, um, as well <laughs> as, as so we we didn't know what we were biting off. As I say, we were showing each other how to play these tunes, and, and we thought, okay, let's proceed. And then, when you really dig into the songs, you realise that even Queen's most simple song have the most devilish little twists in them. Yeah, and so we we it took us a year and a half, nearly two years, to have a repertoire that we thought was approaching you know a way of doing these songs that we could do over the years we've refined it and this that and the other but it was a leap of faith at the time that first concert we did we weren't sure even dressing up because um, you know we, we we had this drama department at our disposal so we had costume designers who also lived in the same halls of residence we were all in the same place <laughs> this little hotbed of talent What wow. we what we thought was talent you know a hotbed of ambition certainly and we thought let's let's do this properly we thought we would throw ourselves at it. We, got, we rushed off and bought wigs from Brixton Market. And it was, it was very sort of homemade, but it was a homemade and heartfelt tribute. Um, the weird thing that happened was we, we, we were all dressed up with nowhere to go
0: and um, we didn't know how to get a gig. I was going to ask you, did people accept the idea that you were going to be a tribute band? Because that was a new concept at no, the time. Well, we, absolutely. We weren't sure anyone would. And I, I was very wary
1: even after we did our first few shows, you know, for for a good few years, I wasn't sure about tributes. I wasn't sure, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Is this, and I, I ended up thinking it depends how it's done, you know, because I could see tributes that looked a little bit, you know, and, and, and some tributes that made the band into a joke and some, so I thought, okay, there's a range of tributes here. And I wasn't sure that that was something I wanted to sort of be a part of, but then something in me just loved doing it. But anyway, we, we, going back to our first show, that this huge thing called London University has got, it's got loads of colleges dotted out all over, stretching out all across London. And there's this one central college in the middle called London Yulu. And they threw this huge ball that's for everybody. And that's what all of London's to come together and can- congregated this ball. And they put on someone like Oasis or Pulp or, or Blur or the big UK Brit pop bands at the time or, or Nirvana or whoever's touring or the Pixies. You know, that, that's, that's the level of band that would, um, that would uh, beget their show. And for some reason that one year when we were just dressed up waiting for a show, um they forgot to re- renew their entertainment's license. They just slipped <laughs> their mind. So they couldn't put on a band. But they weren't the Camden Council wouldn't allow them. And they said, Oh, this is so embarrassing. We've got this big ball coming in. We've got nothing. What are we gonna do? Play a disco for four hours? What do we Someone slipped them a photo fo- because we've been taking photographs of me in the laundry room. Actually, it was a photograph of me in the laundry room playing the piano, dressed doing up your trousers, burglary, cleaning my trousers. I was dressed up with le- with latex and not latex, uh, leotards and whatever, you know. And uh, I looked, I looked quite the picture. And this crazy little photograph got somehow landed on the guy who's going to try and solve this problem's desk. And he went, oh! And even then, with this crazy photograph of me playing a piano in a laundry room, he thought. Well, that's got potential <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so uh she gets in touch with me and brings me up and uh, and um says do you want to do you want to headline the, the university ball for the, all the colleges and play in front of a, a thousand and so people and i said that sounds interesting but no because uh, that sounded terrifying i thought oh <laughs> no he says no come to dinner he actually took this me this was going to be lunch. your first gig first gig ever and he said he said come out for lunch and I don't know why he invited me to lunch, because we'd never met. Um, and I said, okay, I think he must have been that desperate to sort of bag something. But we got on really well. And and by the end of the lunch, I thought, I'm going to back myself. You know, I think you have to at some point decide. That's why I find your story so fascinating. You know, you, right. you, am I going to do it or not? Am I going to do this? You know, and I thought, well, look, he explained to me the circumstances. And I thought, There's no, this is so weird. There's no way that would happen twice. I'm, I'm ready as I'm ever going to be. And if I let this slip through my fingers, I might as well not have bothered at all. So, um, I'm, I'm going to do it. And, and, but I, you are absolutely right. I didn't know how it would go down. I thought we might get booed the moment we walked on stage because Freddie means a lot to people and right. means a lot yeah, to you us and, Freddy. If, and we're not Freddie and it's presumptuous to try and be, um, and, and also it was raw. It was 1993. It felt, it, it all felt aw- aw- awfully raw, uh, yeah. still. So, and also, tributes were beginning to get the idea the thing about tributes was they were beginning to become a joke thing they were just emerging as we were doing it but a lot of people were doing it ironically and i thought i don't want us to be like tediously earnest but i because queen had a sense of humor about them you know sure. i want us to, i want us to be entertaining and i want us to have the same sort of humor that queen conveyed but i don't want us to seem like we're taking the mickey either you know because uh, that would irritate me and that would be like getting it utterly wrong so and pointlessly so so I didn't i just didn't know where the audience would get that you know and get where we were coming from so what was the reaction so i was terrified they went through the roof the wave of you know you can feel the atmosphere in a room you can feel it and it's tangible and you you can feel that the effect you're having is magnifying it um and it's not it's not diminishing it um when you stepped out on stage the love. And I mean it—the love and the excitement from that audience was totally palpable. And that we, our first show. So, you know, I I was pretty damn nervous. I don't really suffer from nerve nerves like that. Really, Um, I I want to get things right, but you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really quake too much. But I was there was definitely a level of quaking um, going on there, but it sort of vanished. And I was—I think the audience carried us through that first show. That's amazing. I've got it on the video, a really old creaky video with, with streamers and things going through the air. And, and that very first show is, has been captured, luckily, only tiny bits of it. Um, and I've yet to look at it because in my mind, it's, it remains one of the happiest nights of my life. It was glorious. It felt like you were being hugged.
0: You know what? This story is reminding me a little bit of uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash played their right. first concert at Woodstock. And these were guys that all had a big background, you know, in playing in different rock and roll bands and playing in big concerts. And yet they were terrified, of course, when they played that first concert. This is the second time we've ever played in front of people, man. We're scared shitless. (laughs) And just like with you, it went fantastically well, of course. And I can imagine the elation that you felt when you're concept was accepted the way that it was it remains not just because of the
1: concept because the but that exactly what you're saying that feeling afterwards of not just relief but buoyancy that we felt like it was heaven sent it was i was so so happy and i met with everyone and the people who put it on and we stayed and had drinks and i i lived on the outskirts of london like that in south london so i could a good two hours walk or something from where i was and I could have got a taxi. I could have got a tube or something or a bus or something. But I, I walked home and I walked across those beautiful London bridges because uh, I love the bridges of London. They, they're really so beautiful. And, and I was just on my own. Um, but I, I even remember that walk. I felt so happy. It fit, it went it went in a heartbeat. Uh, I was so pleased. That's great. And we had a tour. We had a tour booked within that. within a, The guy who booked us said, right, okay, I can actually get you a tour of the England uh, within a week. And we and then within a year and a half of that, we're in the West End, which is like Broadway uh, and on national TV. So we went from having no shows at all to this one show. And that one show opened the whole world up
0: for us. And then that even led to some arenas later on. Now, you've been doing this a long time. This was 1993. How has the the tribute world changed? I mean, as you as we've discussed, there are so many tribute bands that are out there now. It seems like every band has a tribute band. I, I don't knock mm-hmm. that. I'm just saying that no, it's, I think it's, it's mushroomed from where you started. How do you feel that uh, things have progressed for you and for killer queen? I always feel that, uh, we're
1: a mirror, uh, of, of, of the general public's, you know, or everybody, the world's kind of love of queen. Um, so we've, we've, we've had amazing things happen to us. Like we've had promoters get in touch and say, okay, we're going to do some of the arenas that Queen played with Freddie. This is before Queen became you know, back on the road again. This is when Queen was still parked uh, and wondering what to do. We we were offered arenas and those arenas sold out and we, we, were, we were able to play and to, to the so, sort of crowds that Queen had played. So that, that was amazing. Um, but I always think in terms of how has it been for us, I think we've been in the right place at the right time and we've worked hard. So it's a combination of things. We've I've always wanted the show to look good. I think, you know, I've always to the detriment of, of, of anything, you know, I, I, well, of, of, of certain levels of things I've pushed whatever the budget was to, um, you know, for the lighting and really insisted on that with promoters, promoters and producers and things to the point of not doing shows if, you know, we, 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 we were going to really go under on that sort of stuff. So making sure the production was in, was important. Tell me
0: this, you're competing now in essence against the real queen, I'll call them. Okay. I'm not trying to say that with any negative connotations, but how does that work for you? Does, does it interfere at all? in no. In what you're doing? I think,
1: I think what you're, what I was trying to say was that um, we've had a lot of, we've had big levels of success, you know, and we play a range of venues, but I think it's always been a reflection of what Queen um, ha, are, are doing. So I don't think we're cutting against Queen, however benignly, you know, uh, in any way as competition, I think we're there to amplify their success. And we're a reflection of their success. So, I mean, it's not, it's no accident that, you know, that, 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 that Queen, uh, uh the, the quality of their songs has seen them through, but also that you've got to keep finding a way to deliver the songs to new generations. Right. You can't just assume they're going to pick up these records or hear it on the once or twice on the radio. You have to have a medium and the mediums that they've chosen to, you know, uh, initially was uh, a lot of compilations and this, that and the other, but then they moved into the, 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 the musical. And the musical, I know for a fact, was extraordinary, and and also it only ever benefited us in as much as it there a, 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 each time they find a new platform for their songs, the the generation just hearts open to them. A song, you know, a song like uh, "No One uh, But You" uh, is is so moving and so heartfelt, and, and 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 has a complete life now due to that musical, uh, as well as all the other songs. And then Bohemian Rhapsody, the film later on. Um, Again, it did the same thing. It made a huge so difference. It's, I, I feel like we're sort of surfing a wave, um, but it, I don't <laughs> think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not like we've created that wave. We've, we've made sure we've got a sturdy surfboard, you know, if we're going to stick with this. Um, you've continued the wave <laughs> so,
0: and you've supported the wave. Hi, everybody. I'm Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a professional musician in addition to hosting this Follow Your Dream podcast. In fact, I just released my 13th album, all since I followed my dream after I turned 60. The album is called It's Alive, and it's a live recording by my band, Project Grand Slam, featuring 13 of our greatest hits, recorded at festivals in Pennsylvania and Serbia. The reviewers have called it a masterpiece and an instant classic. I introduced this album through a podcast episode, which has now been downloaded by thousands of listeners from over 120 countries, which shows the power and worldwide reach of this podcast. When I began the podcast, I had no idea where it would go. But here we are, just over two years later, and the podcast is ranked in the top 1% with listeners in 200 countries. It's been a joy ride for me, my guests, and for my thousands of listeners. If you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you get each episode when it airs. And you must visit our website at followyourdreampodcast.com to check out all of our episodes, our famous guests, and much more. I want to thank you for listening and keep on rocking. Okay, listen, I got to go into the Songfest portion of our interview because we don't have that much more time. Okay, you've picked out a few songs, and I want we're going to start playing them now underneath us. The first one is It's Late from News of the World. And if I say I
2: love you in the candlelight There's no one but myself to blame But there's something inside That's turning my mind away Oh, I could love you If I
0: Tell me why you love that
1: one. Oh, uh, I think everyone is on fire on that song. Uh, I think Brian sometimes sort of talks about, oh, oh, you know, we should have tracked things live. We should have done this. And this. But, from, uh, you know, you would have got the essence of the song more and this and the other. But I disagree. I think this song is amazing. It, it tells a story. Uh, it's very dramatic. Freddie's, Freddie was supremely good, supremely good at interpreting um his his bandmate songs um and bringing such rip roaring emotion uh and excitement to a vocal and and brian's guitar and roger's drumming and, and 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 john's bass everything about meshes they sound so like a band on fire with this song and it tells a great story um it has some tempo changes that are just delicious i think it's even got some early tapping stuff that you know pre Eddy, uh, or, or around that same time anyway um so it's very innovative of what, what brian was seeing in guitar but for me it just it just coalesces into such an exciting dramatic experience but it's very visceral uh and heartfelt you know um i think it would surprise a lot of people if if they've only heard the hits just just where this song goes so i love it it's always been one of my favorites all right next one innuendo This is a monster of a song. It 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 sort of emerged towards the end of Freddie's recording career uh through a jam that was sort of I think riffing on a sort of cashmere type theme from from Led Zepp. and Freddie heard that from the control room in their big and that they were playing in the big casino room and he rushed downstairs and they started riffing and 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 putting this down and some of the stuff was from that very first take I think that made or our men anyway that made that made the uh, made the track. This song just travels so many places, but it does it so beautifully and enically. Each different section, this feels so apart. It's so different from the preceding section, but feels very much of a piece. And that's what Queen's was so good at doing that. It, it, it reminds me, it seems to have some share common ground with David Bowie's Black Star. Um, they share the similar sort of intervals and cadences here and there and, and as, and, and in terms of different movements and things. But for me, it's, it's, it's like a companion piece to the Himaraphs. It's so good. And Freddie's vocals are bitingly good. Do you play this song in concert? No, I ch- I, di- I chose most of the songs I've chosen. We don't play in concert. Um, I'd like to play innuendo. um You you need a lot of classical guitar, and you need. I think practically it presents a few problems for us. So you play mainly
0: the hits in concert.
1: I assume. We, no, we do we do deep cuts, but we do deep cuts that that serve the band well, and you know that fit in with what we're doing. So we'll you know things like *Sail Away*, *Sweet Sister*, and 39, and things that aren't necessarily you know singles. We put in. And all lesser-known things like Godoflesh and Boy that you know that I really like. Um, so I'm I I would be interested. I think if I can find a way with our lineup of doing innuendo, I would. But I think we'd need to bring another guitarist on the road with us to make it work. Um, okay. But it's it's a beautiful song.
0: All right, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the new single or the single that you have put out. <laughs> Why don't you talk about that a little bit?
1: This is my sort of love song, my love note to Queen. Um, it, it, it references and, and 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 sort of does a little pays lip service to various tracks, much in the same way that sort of Soul Brother did, which was their sort of tongue in cheek thing they did in the early eighties. Um, but this tries to do it without drawing attention to itself too much. It tries to be a song on its own rather than. Um, uh too much of a, a pastiche I, I, if if you're listening to it casually i you know and you didn't know all of queen's work you know i'd like people to sort of like think oh right okay that's that's what queen do you know uh and it, and the song to have a life of its own aside from being have all these references but yes it's packed full of references it's even got some of brian may's desert island discs thrown in there some of the some of planet suite um in the original uh opening thing which i thought i'd just throw in i was like a cook just through- <laughs> i thought oh, let's have some of that you made let's a you biz, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought, oh, no, I listened to this on disc and thought, oh, we'll put that into. So it's a song I'd had for a while, and I had it in my back pocket, so to speak, and I'd recorded it. And we put it together with, the, with the, during lockdown. It's also a song about being resilient and, and and not taking, you know, not taking no for an answer and just going, boom, boom, no, we'll fight again. Um, which I think we all need, you know, we all need that kind of feeling, you know. And I think Queen are always a very, lyrically, they're, they're quite, you know, the, 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 the underdog who makes good, you know, the things like we are the champions is someone who's had sand kicked in their face. They have a fierce aspect
0: to their music.
1: But it's, it's fierce, but it's, but it's from a, from, you know, some, you know, so I want it all as an adventure seeker on an empty street, you know, someone with nothing, but wants it all in the same with, we are the champions. It's, you know, I paid my dues, but committed no crime. I've had sand kicked in my face, but we are the champions. Right. So it's always going from A to B. It's never just arrogance. Um it's <laughs> always, it's always, it's always, OK, we started from this point, but we're going to stand we're going to stand proud. You know, so I was trying to find something that echoed those sentiments. So I thought we'll fight again. You know, um, so, you know, the battle ain't over, you know, you know, if, if the, the, you know they, they, they might have won a battle, but the war isn't lost. You know, we will fight again.
0: You know, yes. so that's what it was about. And it was great fun to do. We have been talking here with Patrick Myers of Killer Queen, Patrick, it's been a fascinating thing to listen to you tell the story about how you got into this and how you have uh, really reveled in it for so many years now and how long you've kept this going. And you've done this with a real love and affection for the band and for Freddie, which I think comes through in what you do. As you said, there are some tribute bands where it's almost like a joke. It's almost like an inside kind of a joke you do it with great respect for the music. And I think that people appreciate that. So I just wanted to add that. I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast with me. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much. Okay. Now we're going to listen, as we uh, said at the beginning, to uh, my band's reimagined version of the Kinks, You Really Got Me, that we played at the introduction. We're going to play it now as well. And I want to thank you all for tuning into this podcast episode and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at com, And you can hear more from his band at ProjectGrandSlam.com and at the PGSStore.com.